Good morning, Restore. Happy uh, holiday weekend. Um, I'm excited to see you guys. Uh, I know it was kind of a rainy weekend and a rainy morning. Uh, and so you're always kind of um, curious, am I going to get out of church? Am I going to bed for church this morning? But so thankful to see you guys this morning. Uh, and particularly, I'm excited of, over what we're going to be doing. So um, whether you're here in person or you're, you're traveling this weekend and, and watching us on the live stream, uh, we're going to be starting a new series uh, called basically like, What is Church? Okay, so we've been in, um, this whole summer, we've been exploring the Psalms, uh, and we really asked the question of, what is faith? So if, if, if faith is the foundation that church is built off of, really the question I want to ask now is, like, what is church? Right? So, like, if I, if I asked you, like, what is it that you got up for this morning? Or if, or if you're traveling with us this weekend, uh, like, what is it that, like, you're tuning in and watching right now? Like it's Sunday, it's 10 a.m., there's church in Houston, so there's churches all over the city that are meeting, there's churches all over the country that are meeting, depending on what times. Like over the next 12 to 18 hours, like across the world, communities of people are going to gather, Protestants and Catholics, Evangelicals, Baptists, Presbyterians, like all of these denominations are going to gather, they're going to do things like take communion with one another, they're going to sing worship songs, they're going to hear some variation of the word preached, right? The word of God preached in some kind of capacity. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is what is it? Like, why are you here? What is it that we like we can expect from it? What is it that we can hope from church? Like, what is it that church is? And like, what is it that I hope, like, as I'm on this journey doing church, because you made some effort to get up this morning, right? Like, we make some effort to be a part of a faith community. What is it that, like, what's the end goal? Like, what is it that I'm doing here? What is all of this about? And so the way that we're going to do this is we're going to actually explore Paul's very first letter uh, to the Thessalonians. Why I love this letter, so I'm going to give us just a little bit of background of of Thessalonians. Thessalonians is probably the earliest New Testament document that we have. It's probably written even before the accounts of Jesus, which we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thessalonians was probably written even before them by several years. As early as seven to ten years after the death of Christ, we have this sort of intimate, raw, new letter written by Paul to some of the very first churches that have started. And so when he starts the letter off and he says, greetings to you, church, it's probably one of the first times in all of history that we have this word, church, recorded. Greetings to you, church. An entirely new word around an entirely new concept of people. And so this morning, what I want to do is peer into Paul's world just a little bit. And if you're going to ask me, so I asked the question, what is church? Here's what I would say, say it is. At its simplest, I don't know, root, raw, like definition of it, here's what I would say church is. It's a space of strange friendship. 
And I'll tell you exactly why I picked those words. One, because they're not actually mine. It's one of my favorite theologians who writes on Thessalonians. Uh, but I think he's exactly right. When I say the church is a place of strange friendship, what he is saying is, and what we're going to do this morning is peer into the letter, like the concept that's happening here that Paul's writing to is so foreign to the ancient world. It's so strange. And yet there's this deep sense of affection and warmth and love and care that Paul has for this church and that this church has for people like they have for one another. That like it is nothing but strange friendships. Strange friendships with one another, and this idea, this curious idea that God has become friends with us, right? Jesus says, I have not called you servants, but I have called you friends. We read in the Bible that Moses speaks to God, and God speaks to Moses as a friend. And so if you ask me, like, how do I define church? It is strange Friendships. And this entire letter uh, is what I want to do is explore this a little bit more. And so part of what we have to do is explore context in order to understand like just how odd some of the words that Paul is speaking is like we have to understand a little bit of like his context. Uh, so I'm the, I'm the dad of a three-year-old, uh, almost three-year-old. So I have a lot of conversations uh, without any context uh, because three-year-olds do not understand context. And the other day, and I, I got home from work, uh, and she saw me, and she ran up, and so she goes, she came up to me, my daughter, she's three, she's almost three, and she goes, hey, big boy. <laughs> and I was like, come again? And like, you could see like in her head, she had done exactly what she wanted, like she had connected with me in some way, but I was really curious, like, not daddy, she usually calls me papa. She goes, hey, big boy. And you could tell, like, she was very proud of this new, like, kind of label that she had given me. And so as I was thinking about it, like, what is, okay, where did that come from? What did you mean by that? Uh, like, I had to dive into her world a little bit. And then I realized at school, she's been learning ages, which she understood primarily as little, like babies little older than her, and big. The kids that are older than her, they go, because she's getting ready to go to the big kid class. And so anyone older than her is big, anyone younger than her is little, and then she'd also been learning boys and girls. And so like when she saw me, like in her mind, I am a big boy. That's exactly what like she meant by it. And so I had to take a little bit, like for me to really understand what she was trying to stay there, because at first I was like, oh, good Lord, like some kid at school has been watching Netflix without the parental filter on and like <laughs> teaching all the other kids now, like what they're hearing. But really, like, there was nothing in that other than, like, I had to get into her world and kind of understand, like, what she's saying, what she's trying to say. So I had to understand a little bit of her context. This is exactly what we have to do with Paul. We have to understand a little bit of his context to see just how strange, like, just how odd these letters actually are and the words that he actually uses are. So let me, let me read for us. We're actually going to only be in the first five verses today. What we're going to do is explore the intro to the letter, uh, because that in and of itself is entirely bizarre if we'll see the context that Paul's kind of writing in. So I'm going to read the first five verses for the letter, and then we're going to get started this morning. 
We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. The words will be behind me on the screen if you don't have your Bibles or if you'd like to follow along. We'll be starting in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll get started. And Father, for these next few minutes that we have um, gathered around uh, your scriptures, um, would you help us? Would you help us peer into the world of this first church? Um, the love that they had for one another, the faith that compelled them forward, the hope that led them to endure. Um, Father, I admit this morning just my own inadequacies at, at understanding just the depth and the beauty and the love of who you are and who the, what the church is. So this morning, would you help us? Would you help me? Would you have mercy on us, Father? We need you. We love you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So, so if, I, if I define the church uh, by, by strange friendship, he, here's what I really mean by that. It's a place where uh, we learn that God is friends with us, and then we develop and deepen our love and our affection for one another through friendship. Uh, and the reason I love this word friendship is it implies a little bit more than just like I'm friendly with you. Like I want us to be friendly. We have a great hospitality team that sets up coffee every morning. Like we, we want to be friendly towards you. And yet uh, I think friendship and like relationship in the church actually is always and always has meant to be something deeper Something deeper than just like I'm polite towards you, like I give you a high five in the hallway when I see you. There's something deep about friendship and connection and affection that I think actually compelled these churches forward. So, so if I were to ask you like what started the church in Thessalonians or Thessalonica, I would tell you it was deep, deep friendship and affection for one another. Which, why this is beautiful and why I want us to grab this this morning is we often think like for you to start it, like to be the church or, or like grab a hold of what the church is or be the foundation of the church, you've got to know a bunch of stuff about the Bible. Like you got to have a bunch of scriptural background. I'm not saying like, please hear me, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Like that stuff's helpful and important and beautiful and all of that. But at its core, when Paul talks of power, when he speaks in this letter, there's power here. What he is speaking to is the relationship that we have with one another, born out of the Spirit's love and affection for us, teaching us and showing us how to have love and affection for one another. This is the church. So, so it's, it's funny. Um, 
Uh, maybe y'all have heard this story before, but we, we have uh, some of our friends that are around now at the church. And uh, when, when we first met, like they, we eventually asked them later, like, why did you decide to join Restore? And they were like, I don't know, because you had a normal conversation with us. I was like, man, like the bar's been set so low. Like, <laughs> that's all it took. Like, but what they meant by that was like, there's genuine interest in like knowing me, seeing me, like hearing me. Which is precisely how God interacts with you. And so part of what is being the church is learning how to live and love and be in like the presence of a relational God. Okay, so here's what we're going we're gonna to do this morning. So um, as I unpack this a little bit, uh, you know, we have a, we have a, uh, a word that we, we use around here a lot when we, we started the church, particularly it's kind of our catchphrase is like, we believe church should be all about love. So we're starting one that is. Uh, and I both hated and loved that, that phrasing for a couple of reasons. One, because I loved it because it's true, uh, but I didn't always like it because like that word love has gotten hijacked in so many different ways in our culture. And so like the second usually that I say like, hey, church is about love, people are like, what are you guys, a bunch of hippies? Like there's this kind of like sense of like everybody's got a different definition of the word love. Okay, this is part of why marriage sometimes is such a, uh, journey, if you want to call it that, uh, is because both of you have come into that marriage with different definitions of love sometimes. Like you, you grew up in a home receiving love from your parents in a certain way, or maybe not receiving love from your parents in a certain way. And like you've brought that into the marriage. And then both of you now have to kind of figure out, wait, what is like, how do I receive love? How do I give love to you in a way that you receive it and it registers with you? And so part of, part of when I say, like, I want us to be a church about love, like, people are like, well, I don't know, is that just because you're a super liberal progressive pastor or you're, you're like, a hippie? Like, like, I've heard these responses before, and the reality is when I say, like, we're a church that's all about love, that we're going to love one another, what I mean by, like, when I say that, it is deeply rooted in some good theology, Hear me when I say that. It is deeply, when Paul talks about uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these being love, it is deeply rooted in his understanding of who God is, the essence of who God is. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack this a little bit, because here's the thing. We can try to be a church that's all about love, and, and I can talk to you guys over and over again about like how I want you to love each other and love each other. Like, I can, like my wife and I will explore this with each other all the time, but the reality is, unless we have some kind of uh, definition of that that sort of transcends our own definitions, we're going to bring in our own flawed definitions of love. And so for us to really understand the nature of love, we have to understand the nature of who God is, like who he is. And this is exactly, you may not realize it, but again, we're going to pop in the context here for a little bit. This is exactly what Paul does when he starts his letter. Uh, so Paul starts by saying, to the church of the Thessalonians in God. That's a little, just think about how weird that, that phrasing is just for a second. The church in God. Right, so like if you, as, as we've grown, like some of you guys are inviting friends or whatever, and they're like, where did you meet? How many of you said, uh, in God? That's where the church meets. No, he said they meet in the YMCA, they're in a gym, right? 
Paul's using some language that's really bizarre to the church that meets in Thessalonica, sorry, third time there, that meets in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Okay, Paul in that one sentence, whether we realize it or not, has just told us the beauty of church, like everything that church is, why we gather. Paul's just unloaded it in one sentence. This church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Okay, so, so Paul sees God uh, as existing as both God the Father and Jesus the Son. This is something we affirm at the church, right? You hear this language called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we baptize, we baptize in these three. When I do weddings, I, I marry them in the name of these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a lot of times when we think of the Trinity, we often think like we have to have some deep theological understanding. Wait, God is three persons, yet one essence, like one God, three persons. How does all that work? Okay, so a couple of things uh, that I'm going to tell you, one that might frustrate you, but then two, I'll tell you why, and hopefully you're not as frustrated with me. Uh, I'm not going to explain it to you, and this is why. Throughout the history of the church, people have come along in almost every generation, theologians, and have tried to explain the Trinity. The new analogy of it, a new, like, uh, a version, like, somehow, like, here, let me understand, let me help you understand how God is those three persons in one. And then about 20 or 30 years later, everybody starts going, wait, that's pretty heretical. Like, and so every attempt to actually define the Trinity beyond what like the early Nicene creeds define the Trinity as, as existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, most attempts beyond that have ended up like shortfalled in some kind of way. And here's the thing, Paul is not interested in getting them to develop an intellectual understanding of the Trinity. Because friends, like I just, over 2,000 years of church history and theology has told us that most of the time that's not possible beyond what the early church, like the universal church councils, Council of Nicaea, the Apostles, like they got together and said, we're not quite sure, but God exists as one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What Paul is far more interested in is not giving us an intellectual understanding of like, how, so how do we understand all of that? For Paul, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in one essence, and that essence, that same essence, is love. John tells us this in 1 John 4. For Paul, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means God is relational. These three are in relationship with one another. And Paul tells us exactly what is the essence of their relationship, grace and peace. So, so Paul is the first Christian writer. I know like this morning we're being a little bit more theological than I usually am with you guys and a little bit more, but, but I want us to grab this because this lays the foundation for like how we understand our identity as church, but then also how we interact with one another. So Paul sees this relationship, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these three, three distinct persons, fully God, one God is existing in this relationship where grace and peace pour out from one another, to one another, with one another, and from one another. The Trinity, in Paul's view, is this relationship where the Father, Son, and Spirit constantly receive from one another and give to one another, relationally speaking. 
Okay, so, so Paul's primary concern with the Thessalonians is not, let me get you to understand the Trinity with some deep intellectual analogy that'll help you wrestle with it. What he's wanting them to see is Father, Son, and Spirit have grace and peace flowing through one another to one another. Love and deep affection. In John 17, Jesus prays his priestly prayer and he prays to the Father. And what does he say? This joy that you and I know, I want them to now be a part of it. This joy that you and I have because of my obedience to you, my affection for you, your affection for me, I want them to now be a part of it. This is John 17, his priestly prayer. For Paul, the Trinity primarily is relational. He understands it in the context of relationship. And what he's getting them to say is this church that is in God, you are now a part of this. You are now in this. This will be, by the way, Paul's primary way that he describes relationships with God as being in God or in Christ. Read it. In your, the word, by the way, in, in your New Testament, the word Christians only used three times in the whole, whole New Testament. And most of those times are in Acts. What is far more used to describe Christians all through the New Testament writers is being in God. Pick up any letter by Paul and start reading it. You'll see it over and over again. In Christ, you are a new creation. In God, what Paul is wanting to get at here is this God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love each other in deep joy and affection. You are now a part of it. You are in this with them. Those analogies that Paul will use of the church as being the hands and the feet of Christ, what, they're tr what he's trying to get us to see is we are now united with Christ. And because Christ is united with the Father, like you have this relationship with God where grace and peace flow to you. So that this, this letter that he writes, that, that he starts out with, and this greeting, this grace and this peace to you, isn't him being religious or like kind of having a flowery religious greeting. He's actually trying to get them to see. Uh, so that, those words, grace and peace, sorry, my mic has been bothering me this morning, uh, are subjects in the nominative. What that means is he's seeing grace and peace as something that is given to you as a gift from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you now participate in. So, so that word grace, what Paul's primarily speaking of there. Is my beard or the mic? I'm not sure which this morning. Uh, that word grace, which Paul is primarily speaking of there, is this free gift of God's love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness that has been granted to you in Jesus Christ. This word peace is, is the first time we really see kind of in the ancient world, uh, Paul, you, like this word being used. So that word peace was usually described in the ancient world as, as like absent of war because of Roman control of the world. But Paul has a much bigger definition in mind. Grace and peace to you. That word peace, what Paul's using there is he's wanting to see this full blessedness, this full like wholeness to you, like goodness to you, like you being the version of you that God always meant for you to be because he loves you. This is what you get from this relational God grace, forgiveness, and peace, or fullness, or wholeness to you, because this is how the members of the Trinity exist with one another, in fullness and in wholeness with joy. 
Okay, so, so there's our big sign that you see when you walk in there. You are part of God's plan to restore all people to his love. This is how we got our name Restore. Uh, it, like, one, like, copyright-wise, there weren't any other restores in Houston at the time, so it was like it made an easy choice. But, like, uh, beyond that, there's some deep theology here that I want us to grab this morning. You see, for Paul, their relationship with God is so much more than God just not punishing them for the wrong things they've done. That's grace. But it's not just grace that they receive from God. It's also peace or fullness or wholeness. So when we say like you're a part of God's plan to restore or grace restores all things, you'll hear me say this a lot. What I mean is it's, it's God is not just not punishing you for the wrong things you're, you've done. Like he desires so much more for you and with you and from you in that. He desires fullness and wholeness from you. Like he wants you to be more alive than you've ever felt, more secure than you've ever been, more confident than you could ever be, like less shameful, like experiencing less shame, remorse, and guilt in your life than you'll never, like than you ever think you could. Like this is Paul's heart for the people and he wants them to understand that. Look at like what, what you have available to you. Look at the way that the father loves the son. That's a va- that kind of fullness and wholeness is available to you. So I, I think like one of my jobs just as a pastor, one of the things that I, I realized, like I'm still learning, we're not like, we're less than a year old. Um, but one of the things that I'm learning repeatedly, like part of my job is to help us not make peace with the brokenness in our life. With our sins, our shame, our addictions, our fears, like our insecurities, like our regrets, like the things that we've kind of become accustomed to living with. This is just me. This is just how I am. This is just what I can expect from life. Paul never pastored his churches this way. He never came at them as like, well, lucky you guys, you got off the hook with the like, no, 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 grace and wholeness to you. I want you to be fully alive in God, this church that is now in God. I want you to look at this relationship of this Trinity, see the goodness that exists within it and realize you are now in this. You have access to it. You don't have to settle for anything less than the abundance of God's goodness. And if you need proof of it, just know that you are in God and look at the way that the Father treats the Son. That's how he relates to you now because you are in Christ. So um, this is... uh, one of the reasons I want to wrestle with this this morning is for us to see like how deeply relational God is and that those of us who've been created in God's image, we are also wired deeply relationally as well. Like our relationships, in the West in particular, we're more individualistic and we wrestle with this sometimes, but really our relationships very much define who we are. Who your parents were or were not, how they treated you or didn't treat you have defined things about who you are. This is why Paul uses this language to describe Jesus and the Father, the Father and the Son. The Father exists. The Father is a Father because of the Son. The Son is a Son because of the Father. Their existence is tied up to one another, deeply relational, deeply connected. 
So uh, there was a study that was done a couple of years ago. Uh, I say a couple, it was actually now five decades ago. Um, I'm really bad at dating things. A lot of my friends joke with that because I'm always like the other day and they're like, that was like four years ago. Uh, I don't know. I just have a bad time with time like that. Uh, but there was, there was a study done. Uh, I don't know if you all have ever heard of it. It was, the, it was called the Framingham uh, Heart Study. It was done in Massachusetts and they, they surveyed, I think it was 5,200 different uh, participants. They were trying to do like a longitudinal study on heart disease. Like how do, how do people with heart disease live? Uh, but what they ended up doing was collecting so much data that social scientists, researchers and such, were able to go and kind of look at socially how do people interact on large scales. And here's what they found. They found that when one person experienced joy in their life or happiness, that that happiness would spread out to other relationships by an integral of three. What I mean by that is by three people away, would also experience some of the same joy that this person experienced. So if this person had a good day, what they found is that person's friend could have a good day, like experience some of the goodness that they had and that person's friend and that person's up to a factor of three. Then after three, it kind of dissipated. But that means that like three people away could experience joy and happiness that somebody way over here had experienced without ever even knowing this person. And they were actually able to quantify it enough. And so my, my former background, I'm a clinician, so I'm always fascinated by this. But they, it was by a factor of, of 10%. So if somebody one day had experienced a 40% increase in their happiness, with each layer it went out, it would dec- like, so that the next person around them would have kind of uplifted happiness by about 30%. And then that person's friend by 20%. And then the, the final person kind of on the chain, 10%, if that makes sense. So like each person kind of by a factor of 10% would experience some of this goodness, some of this happiness. Here's what this means. We are deeply wired, relationally speaking. Whether you realize it or not, we're connected with each other in ways that you may not even realize that we're connected to one another. You're connected with the people in your church in ways that you may not even realize that you are. And people are incredibly sensitive to one another. So you, you may not realize this either, but like your, 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 your brain registers four to five times a second, depending on the research you read, four to five times a second, it scans for danger in every interaction that you're having, including ones with your like most trusted people. Uh, and danger, not necessarily physically, but just like your brain is constantly asking the question when you're interacting with someone, is this person for me or against me? Are they going to like help me? Or are they going to hurt me? doesn't matter. It can be like even your child, like it's just your brain is wired this way to constantly be assessing and reassessing the safety of the relationships that you're in. God is a relational God. We are a relational people. We are deeply wired this way. So, so Paul says, uh, we remember in verse three, we remember uh, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. Again, here it is, listen, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's gonna use this word in over and over and over again. And you say, well, wait, what is that? Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by hope. Faith, hope, and love. Paul talks about these, faith, hope, and love the greatest of these being love. Paul's beginning to lay this foundation. Here's, what the, here's the thing about these words, though, that Paul is using here. You notice that faith, he talks about works, uh, and labor is, is connected to love, okay? Um, this is because loving people requires effort. Some of you married people are like, yeah, no kidding. Tell me something I didn't know. Uh, 
sorry if your spouse just looked at you really weird. Um, you can put that one on me later. But love is a labor. This work that Paul's talking about, these works, isn't like works for your salvation. What he's saying is this, this way in which you guys are all connected with one another, now because you are in the Spirit of God, like is going to require effort on your part to work, to love one another, to see one another, to care for one another. Uh, and so th- this is where, uh, like we in the West, uh, particularly, because we're individualistic, and I'm pushing on us a little, like picking on us a little bit this morning, but I want to push here. Um, we we kind of see church as like, I don't know, like a bag of marbles. And, you know, all the marbles get together on a Sunday morning, and we kind of, you know, we're in this bag of marbles together. But then we all go out to our other bags throughout the week, right? So you're like, you've got your work bag there, or you know, your home life or your school life or whatever, um, kids' life, all of that. Like, and the, the marbles kind of come back together. Um, I, I think that the picture that Paul is painting of church is actually a lot more like a bunch of sticks laid on top of one another. I don't know if you ever played the game Fiddle Sticks where you had to like, some of you, like those of you who didn't have computers might have played this game. Uh, I remember playing it. Like you dumped a bunch of sticks on the floor and you had to like remove sticks without touching the other sticks, but it was impossible because all the sticks were kind of laid on top of one another, almost like a Jenga. Um, and here's the thing that was like, you had to remove a stick from the pile without removing any other sticks, which was almost, it was a super frustrating game. It's no wonders that we moved on to computers, really. Um, but he, here's what I think the church is. Here's what I think your small groups are, by the way. Here's what I think like life together is. We are interconnected in ways you don't realize we are. As each of us become more like Christ, as we're shaped more like him, as we become more loving, more compassionate, more merciful, more just, right? As we absorb more of God's goodness from his work in our lives, what we begin to do is we kind of begin to pull that whole pile of sticks up just a little bit. And so, so much of the church, I think, is, is the church's job is sort of sitting in this culture where you're connected with a lot of other places and a lot of other people. And it's, it's sort of like as God brings you closer to him, makes you more like him, those around you begin to like become recipients of his goodness. This is, again, is deeply theological. Revelation describes God's people this way, as sort of like being trees on the riverside as the, as the river flows forth from, of life flows forth from the throne of God. And then the analogy is like there's, they're on the, these trees that are sort of soaking up the goodness, giving their goodness to those around them. It's a little bit like my daughter, we play, um, we have a tent that we set up all the time in the living room. And there's, there's a central pole, um, but then there's a bunch of other poles that kind of prop up the sides of the tent. Every single one of us is like a pole that props up the side of the tent, and that central pole is like the figure of Christ. That's how Paul sees this. The Trinity exists. It kind of keeps the whole thing together. But each of us, as, as we're raised up in Christ, which Paul will use this kind of language, what ends up happening is we end up sort of raising up those around us as well as the goodness of God flows through us, using us, shaping us, and molding us. So as we, as we close, um, verses four and five, um, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep 
conviction. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying here. I came to the gospel not just with words. I didn't want you to just grab, like wrap your heads around this intellectually. I want you to see that you are now active participation in the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. And you get to spread, like you get to be a part of his way that he spreads that to the world around you. You are now a part of God's plan to restore all people to his love. Those of you, Paul says, loved by God, brothers and sisters. Again, he's using family language here, trying to get them to understand their deep connection to one another. Brothers and sisters, those loved by God, you are now the source of life as God moves through you you become his light to the, world, to, the, to the people around you. You become his source of goodness, his source of mercy, his source of compassion to one another. So I, I saw another interesting study, um, and this is where we'll close this week, um, that was done by a Stanford uh, neurobiologist. Uh, and he'd made this effort to basically categorize all the species that he could uh, as to whether, like, you put them in two groups, collaborative species or competitive species. Uh, and they did, they did, did it scientifically speaking, so they looked at, like, uh, hip, to, hip to shoulder ratio, male to female size ratio, jaw to forehead ratio, brain capacity and development, uh, kind of across the board as a way to kind of identify which species often compete with one another uh, and, and which species collaborate with one another. And they did a, like, did a great job of the study, but when they tried to do it with humans, you know which group they were in? Somebody like, don't answer. It's a trick question. He's going to get you here. <laughs> they were both. Like just, just our, our bodies biologically wired, they couldn't figure out quite where to put the humans as a species. Are they, are they competitive or are they collaborative? Do they work together? Do they compete with one another, right? And so competitive species being species that like they work on their own. Everything else is a source of food. Like they kill, they survive, that kind of thing. Whereas collaborative species are working together. Here's what this means. Humans at their core, I think, are capable of great acts of love, but also great acts of evil. At our core, we're capable of great affection and connection to one another. But the story of Scripture tells us that we're also capable of great rebellion, great selfishness, great self-preservation. This is what the gospel has come to change. At its core, at this, this letter, the letter, the core of this letter, Paul wants to see them. I want you to see the Spirit with deep conviction coming in and changing you at your core. Not just an intellectual understanding. That's important. It's not unimportant. But the Spirit moves inside of you and changes the way that you love one another. Because now you are in God. This relational trinity this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that exists in and with and for one another through love, through faithful obedience, through compassion, through submission, 
We read that all throughout Scripture. The Son submits to the Father. The Father submits to the Son. The Spirit comes forth, flows forth from both of them in love and mercy, or as Paul will say today, grace and peace, or the way I might say it is grace and wholeness. This is now what you are, church. This is now how you participate in God, knowing him. You are in God, the church, Thessalonica, in God. Grace and peace to you. Let me pray for us this morning as we close uh, and the band comes up to lead us in a final song and we'll participate in communion this morning. Father, I admit, um, just how um, short we all fall um, of your love, like your goodness, being able to participate um, in you, uh, being able to live our lives in you. It's a hard one to understand. So God, would you help us? Would you help come, Spirit, with deep conviction? Change us from the inside out. Show us how not to compete with one another, to view each other as threats. But Father, would you show us how to love the way that you love in safety and in humility and compassion and mercy, grace and peace, love and fullness forgiveness and rightness, Father. We need this. We're capable of great evil. But Father, when you show us how to love you, when you show us how to love one another, that changes. So Father, would you change this inside of us? We need this. We love you, Father. Show us how to love one another. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen.